Good morning. Well, we've gathered together now on this Palm Sunday to be able to explore the depths and the richness of God's word, and even more so the depths and the richness of God's nature. Love for you to take your Bibles this morning, and we're turning toward the back of the Older Testament. Returning to the book of Zechariah. And there Zechariah is offering you and offering me a promise, a prophecy. He was a 5th century B.C. prophet who will in extraordinary detail delineate just what took place on Palm Sunday. It's extraordinary. And what I want to do is to look carefully into these verses And I want you to be able to see with me, somewhere along the way, not only the first coming of Jesus Christ prophesied in these verses, but the second coming as well. When you're turning to Zechariah chapter 9, I want you to notice that in chapter 9, the opening verse deals with the idea of an oracle of the Lord. The word oracle in the Hebrew carries with it the idea of a burden, an extraordinary weight that has been placed upon an individual. The very same phrase is again used in Zechariah chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. So in other words now, what you and I find is that we are bookending two significant weighty communications. Heavy gravitational force. Burdens that have been placed upon a man who ministered beginning around 520 B.C. I want you to be able to see here then the weightiness of these two communications. You will find in the midst of these communications such specifics as as the number of coins by which Jesus Christ was betrayed. You will find in Zechariah chapter 14 the story of Armageddon. These are extraordinary things. What I also want you to be able to see is that when you narrow the scope to chapter 9 that in verse 1 And again in verse 8, you and I are informed that the eyes of the Lord are watching, observing. That doesn't merely mean that God is watching us. No, it means so much more. It means that he's watching over us, you see. The eyes of the Lord. So now, as he has bookended verse 1 and verse 8 with the eyes of the Lord. And he's bookended, furthermore, the two significant oracles, burdens, the weightiness of what he wants to teach. What you and I now do is that we narrow our focus. And I'm going to read simply from verse 9 and verse 10. Because this is where we're going to gain traction this morning. And here in verse 9 and in verse 10, 
Succinctly, he's already describing the first and the second comings of the Messiah. Check it out with me. As I read from Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a coat, the foal of a donkey. Now what I want you to sense now is that the mood shifts, okay? There is this sense of exuberance expectancy. Then lo and behold, verse 10 kicks in. The mood shifts. You are now moving from first coming to second coming. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle ball shall be cut off. After this form of cutting off Notice then what he says. Only after the cutting's off, he shall speak <clears throat> peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. And so in just two verses, you're given a glimpse into the first and second comings from a man named Zechariah, whose name means Yahweh remembers. God remembers. God remembers his promise. God remembers his people. Let's look to our Lord in prayer. Now, our Father, what we want to do is to Go into your word. We're not here for pastor's opinions. We are here to drink deeply God's truths. So I want to step aside. I want Christ, I want the cross to be preeminent and allow everything about you, our triune God, to be at the forefront of this extraordinary passage five centuries prior to Christ hitting the ground in Israel. Thank you that you remember. You don't forget. And so, Father, you are not merely watching us, you're watching over us, including the people of the Ukraine, exploring the hearts of leaders in Russia. Thank you, Father, that you are the observant one and you're engaged, not detached. So, Father, when Zechariah was grappling with the whole issues of the hour, 
the one who stands outside of time was well prepared to execute his plan in the perfection of time and in the fullness of time you sent your son into this world. So Father, these moments together are very important. It's now on this Monday, excuse me, on this Palm Sunday, we begin our march through Monday, Thursday, on into Good Friday. And then the extraordinary aspects of Easter Sunday. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds. Shape these wills. As again, our Father, we've come here to see Jesus and him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Join me as we are now positioning ourselves on the road to Jerusalem. Now, this road is running back and forth from Bethany to Jerusalem. Jesus would have left Bethany. He would have made his way to Jerusalem. He would exhibit his authority and then return to Bethany. Today, the streets are full with people with their palm branches. As they're, they're entering into the exuberance, if you will, of this idea of the Messiah having entered into this world and making his way to Jerusalem. You're standing there with your tour guide. And as he's beginning to explain the dynamics of Jesus' forward movement to Jerusalem and ultimately to the cross and so on, you're listening carefully. You're applying what you know from Matthew chapter 21 regarding what have some have called the triumphant entry of Jesus Christ. But you're waiting to find out if the tour guide is going to offer what I'm going to call this morning the prophetic backdrop to that amazing story. That Zechariah, probably in the latter years of his ministry, offers this twofold burden, oracle, a sense of weightiness regarding what was to come. And what I want to do is to take that idea and develop it with you. Because what we're going to do now is to position ourselves on this very road. Soak up the environment. Ponder the history. Take our telescope and look into the future. And what I want to do with these verses from Zechariah 9 this morning is to draw two dominant themes that we're going to be able to detect in these verses that have direct bearing, I believe, upon global matters as well as personal matters in the yesterdays, the todays, and the tomorrows of our lives. Let's dig in. First of all, what I want to do in terms of dominant themes is to extract for us from verses 9 and 10 this thought 
that as you and I, as we're exploring the dominant themes associated with this Palm Sunday and all Palm Sundays, begin here in verses 9 and 10 and note with me the promise of the king. Note how it begins. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. But here's the amazing thing at this point. Zechariah is at a time period when he's not able to experience the fullness of the promise of kingship in the land of Israel. They've just returned from, uh, from exile. He and his colleague Haggai have been involved in ministering as the, as the precincts of Jerusalem and the temple uh, under construction. A king? Where are you getting this from? These are not silly days of kingship, Zechariah. Ah, but you see, his name is Yahweh remembers. And Yahweh is remembering the promise he gave to David of an everlasting kingdom. Now, what he's doing at this point is he's prepping the crowds. And so notice how he begins as he urges the people onward, personifying with the phrase, daughter of Zion. Oh, rejoice greatly, O oh daughter of Zion. He wants to shake them out of their lethargy, which believers need to do even today. Shout aloud, O oh daughter of Jerusalem, you see. And so there's to be these these spontaneous outbursts, spontaneous on one hand, and yet so prophetically prepared on the other hand. Behold, your king is coming to you. Now, we Americans, we have challenges with kings. Revolutionary war, King George, Americans didn't like the taxation system that was being uh, produced out of Great Britain. The slogan during the Revolutionary War period, we will serve no sovereign here. Thomas Jefferson, he was to represent America and France. We're told that King Louis XVI and Queen Maria Antoinette, rulers of France in 1785, when Jefferson arrived as America's ambassador, did not eat alone. 383 men, including nobles, waited on the king, presented each morsel of his food in ceremonial fashion, it took four people just to serve the king a glass of water. Those that know their American history know that the democratic-minded Jefferson was horrified by the extravagance. So he wrote a letter to George Washington. I'm quoting. 
I was much an enemy to monarchy and kings before I came to Europe. I am 10,000 times more so since I have seen what they are all about, unquote. You see, this kind of kingship, sinful kingship that he observed, is such where the king requires his subjects to tend to him. What is astounding about Jesus Christ is that he is one who tends to us. While kings throughout history have required their subjects to lay down their lives for the sake of the king, Jesus Christ is the one who laid down his life for the sake of the subjects. Everything is reversed when you're describing this one. No wonder you and I are called to rejoice greatly, even though this is coming from the 5th century B.C. Uh, But his name is, God remembers. He doesn't forget his promises. Doesn't forget his people, O daughter of Zion. Shout about, O aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. That's a promise that God is making at this point. Now, what you and I want to do then is to ask ourselves some questions such as in just what kind of king is being described here? Well, the answer to our questions is what comes next. First of all, you and I are told that he is righteous. In other words, he is always in the right. His character is righteous. And furthermore, his judgments are righteous. And if you are looking at a judicial system where you are prone to say at times the decision just was not right, you've got a sovereign one who is always in the right. Because it comes out of his very nature. He does according to who he is. So his nature and his character, they're setting the norms, they're setting the standards for what you and I would consider right versus wrong. Uh, But then there's the next phrase. Having salvation is he. Now, for those that know some Hebrew, you know that the verb here to save is difficult to interpret does it mean here that he is providing salvation for his people? Or does it mean that he is being saved from death? Which is it? I would say yes. It's not either or. It's both end. Three days later, Jesus will be raised from the grave saving his people from the penalty of sin, you see. So you tie all that together then at this point, and now you've got one who is righteous. You've got one who comes having salvation. But that's not all. Furthermore, you and I are told that he is humble. 
righteous, having salvation, is he, thirdly, humble. There is a humility here that leaps out, contrasting that to the pride of rulers and leaders throughout the course of history, past, present, and yet still to come. And then you take a good hard look. Mounted on a donkey. And if that's not specific enough for you, five centuries prior, he goes into still more detail when he goes on to say on a coat, the foal of a donkey. Isn't that the specifications that were involved when the disciples went looking for that mount that Jesus Christ was going to utilize when Jesus Christ would make his way into Jerusalem to the point and to the place where he would die for our sins? What's all the more fascinating for you and for me is that what we see here is prophetic connecting of dots. Because in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, there's Jacob. And he's now looking at Judah, his son. And there in this extraordinary teaching, we're told the scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, the nations. Get this. Genesis 49, verse 11. Binding his foal to the vineyard and his donkey's coat to the choice vine, he has washed his garments in wine and his vesture in the blood of grapes. Now what you and I need to be able to see at this point then is that Zechariah is being informed by what was offered in the Genesis 49 account. And you say, but Gary, why a donkey? The colt, the foal of a donkey. What we have to bear in mind is that in that time period, Donkeys were the preferred means of transportation for rulers who were coming in peace. You see, in Christ's first coming, he did not come riding on a horse. He came mounted on a donkey. He did not come to wage war. Through his shed blood, he came to provide shalom, peace. Now, you, you pause here at this point, and you're thinking about the significance then of Palm Sunday and the exact details prophetically that are being described in these verses as Jesus Christ now, King of kings and Lord of lords, is making his way into Jerusalem, and in the process, he is offering 
peace. In a world of turmoil. This comes out of history. The year? 1683. Islam's having its impact upon Austria. It's turned away from the city of Vienna. And you know what? One of the things, some of the things that were left behind were cannons, which had been used, you see, to destroy the city. Well, the people of Vienna decided those cannons could be put to better use. So they melted down the cannons, used the metal to cast a great bell, mounted that bell on the tower of St. Stephen's Cathedral in the heart of the city, and for more than 200 years would call people together to worship God. This is how God works, you see. He turns cannons into bells. He takes that which is opposed to him and sees tremendous opportunities to bring glory to him. That's your first coming right there, you see. Now you're up to verse 10. You have figured out that he's righteous, he's salvation-oriented, he's humble. You've told about the details on a donkey, on a colt full of a donkey, coming therefore in peace, first coming. And lo and behold, you see a dramatic shift in mood in verse 10, don't you? Shrita. Because in verse 10, notice the twofold cutoffs, where he dramatically and militarily fashioned statements states, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim. Those are the ten tribes of the north. And the war horse from Jerusalem. And the battle bowl should be cut off. Two cut offs. Three military descriptions. The chariot, the war horse, and the battle bowl. And then out of this then, he takes the idea of cannons and turns them into bells. He shall speak peace. Shall speak peace to the nations. In other words, here in your Older Testament, you've already got the Great Commission unfolding here, a global strategy. God has got a plan now. He's got a purpose now. But I draw a line from the war horse of verse 10 back to the donkey, a colt, the full of a donkey of verse 9. And I say to myself, if he's riding on the donkey of verse 9, what about this whole matter of the war horse of verse 10? But you and I already know Revelation chapter 19, don't we? Where you and I are told, when I saw heaven opened, behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True. And get this, this is extraordinary stuff. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. In other words, 
In first coming, it was righteous peace he provides. In second coming, it's righteous justice he, he then provides. And out of all this, you and I are told in verse 16 of Revelation 19, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. He's got a name written. What is it? King of kings. And you nod your head. And you say at this point, this is how my sovereign God ties together two comings. He now offers us that sense of the cross, the first coming. He offers us the sense of the crown in the second coming. Two cutoffs in verse 10, bookending the three instruments of military warfare, the chariot from Ephraim, the war horse from Jerusalem, the battle bow shall be cut off, all representations, historical representations of modern day military warfare. And then after the threefold description of the military matters, and after the twofold cutoff, then we're told he shall speak peace to the nations. And then shades of Psalm 72, which we eventually get to in our Psalm series. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. There then, there then is the first of two dominant themes. The promise of the king in verses 9 and 10. What's the second dominant theme? It's the blood of the covenant. Verse 11 and down through verse 17. It's as if now he doesn't want you as you are moving a little further into his second coming to forget what that first coming was all about. They're meant to be connected, not disconnected. So in verse 11, he now gets personal with you and personal with me. As for you, also, comma, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I'll send your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And you say, Gary, uh, about this blood of the covenant, help me to better understand in essence, what he's doing is he's prepping you for Thursday night. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. Remembrance? Zechariah means God remembers. He remembers us. Therefore, in partaking of the bread and the cup, we are remembering him and all that he has done for us. You see. 2018. Special year. While traveling around Israel, 
Something happened in France. Captured everybody's attention in Israel at that time. All running to our iPhones and our laptops and so on to track what was occurring. ISIS. ISIS has taken captive a woman. She's a few female hostage in a supermarket in southern France. When lo and behold, Lieutenant Colonel Arnold Beltram, 45 years of age, jumps into action, shot in the neck after offering to take the place of a woman during a gunman's assault. France records Mr. Beltram died in the service of the nation. He died so that the hostage might live. Oh my. What's running through your mind right now? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is substitution. He substituted self for another. He died so she could live. This grips. There's a global grip here. But this is what the themes, the dominant themes of life and death are all about. Even in the Garden of Eden. If you see the essence of sin, we've said before, is Humanity substituting self for God. The essence of salvation is God substituting self for humanity. What we have are competing substitution plans. The sinless versus the sinful, you see. As for you, also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, he goes on to say, I, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. And you say, Ger, what do you mean now by the waterless pit? We see in the time period in which Zechariah lived, they didn't have a prison system such as you and I know it. Jails such as you and I might ponder. Instead, where a prisoner was, was seized, he would be thrown into a waterless pit. The cisterns would serve as holes in the earth, normally to collect rainwater during the rainy season, but then doubled as retention centers where there was no rain. Look at what he's saying to humanity. I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope. Prisoner of hope? Most of you and I are trafficking with people who are prisoners of hopelessness. 
their hopelessness is tied to despair. Our hope is tied to deliverance. This world is marked by the distinction between hopelessness and hopefulness. And the demarcation is the shed blood of Jesus Christ promised here five centuries before it even happens. Astounding stuff. Does this stir you? The detail? The gripping attention? Return to your stronghold, O prisoners of hope, today, not someday. Today, I declare, I'll restore to you double. That carried with the idea that God's people are his firstborns. Throughout Israel history, the double portion carried with it being the firstborn. Now, in verse 13, still speaking militarily, and you're going to want to connect this to Revelation 19 and Armageddon. For I have bent Judah as my bow, southern kingdom, made Ephraim its arrow, northern kingdom. In other words, he's talking about the reunification of God's people, the Jews, who will come from north, south, east, west, back to Israel for that ultimate final battle. I will stir up your sons, O Zion. Here's something still more amazing. Against your sons, O Greece, people, for those of you that are, teach, that are teachers of history, Greece was not even yet an empire. This was a 5th century B.C. prophet. Alexander the Great, the leader of the, uh, of the empire of Greece, took reign around 336 B.C., this was still to come. And yet God is speaking prophetically and God is speaking specifically. And yet Alexander and all type leaders, rulers, kings, die. They can't take their empires with them. Mr. Putin, you cannot do it. Alexander the Great, we were told upon his deathbed, Command that when he was carried forth to the grave, his hands were not going to be wrapped, as usual, in grave cloths, but left outside the casket so that everyone might see them and see that his hands were empty. He could take nothing with him. Now, when you've got a king who's riding not on a horse in the first coming, but on a donkey, on a colt, the full of a donkey. And he's distinguished by righteousness, salvation, and humility. Then you take a deep breath and you say, kings come and kings go, but here's one who stands out. The king is dead. They might have said on Good Friday, 
long live the king, is the cry on Easter Sunday. You see? Because God promised David an eternal kingdom. Now you're tying all this together because now you are even finding that what God is doing now is he's speaking prophetically about near history as well as distant history. The near and the distant simultaneously. You're up to verse 14. Because now in verse 14, you and I are told that the Lord will appear over them and his arrow. His arrow will go forth like lightning. The Lord God. The Lord God will sound the trumpet, shades of revelation, will march forth in the whirlwinds of the south. The Lord of hosts will protect them. They shall devour and tread down the sling stones. They shall drink and roar as if drunk with wine, be full like a bull, drenched like the corners of the altar, and compare that to the revelation account of the banquet in that final day. This is known as a theophany. In verses 14 and 15. But now notice that final day. The day of the Lord. In verses 16 and now verse 17. On that day. The Lord will save them. Didn't talk about God saving in that first coming. Having salvation is he. But now furthermore, it talks about that salvation, the second coming. On that day, the Lord God will save them. He's going to save his people who are there at that time from what's occurring militarily, politically, and so on as the flock of his people. For like the jewels of a crown, they shall shine on his land. Which means then what happened in 1948 when Israel was granted statehood after century after century after century of, of all forms of despair, not least of all, Holocaust. All of that then is an installment, a major installment, 1948, to what is now being described here. This shall shine on his land. You see, tie it all together. You're up to verse 17. You're doing good. How great is his goodness. How great his beauty. Notice the twofold emphasis upon his greatness, not ours. What's the result? For all those that despair about climate matters. Grain shall make the young men flourish. New wine, the young women. He's describing what is still to come. You pull that together. And you're standing with your tour group on the streets leading to Jerusalem. You're taking it in. Did the people fully understand what they were doing when they were laying down the palm branches? Was their understanding in the midst of the exuberance of the crowd? But you've got it. Because you have now connected, historically yet prophetically, Genesis 49 through 2 Samuel 7 
to Zechariah chapter 9 through Matthew 21, where the great story of Palm Sunday is described. Onward to Revelation 19, which talks about the second coming where he comes not on a donkey this time, but on the horse. And you say, to those who experience hopelessness and are imprisoned, so to speak, in that despair of hopelessness, you find hope in deliverance. You have just taken a Palm Sunday study and put the panorama of all of history together, past, present, future, all for the glory of God. Let's stand together. We're awed, for you see the past, you see the present, you see the future all in the present tense. Nothing catches you off God. It's as good as done. So Father, thank you. And I want to get real personal. For the one who might be watching online, for the one who's been under this roof in one of the services today. And if there is a word that might describe their experience, it's hopelessness. A mood of despair. Remind them that this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Take them to the cross where salvation is secured not by the cup we drink but upon the cross where Jesus died. And then we give you praise because after Good Friday Easter Sundays are coming. And for the gifts, this we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you.